Okay guys, I'm back again with another killer episode following the theme of Black History Month. So this is going to be a rerun of the interview I done with Kai Bond. So for those who don't know, Kai Bond is a serial entrepreneur and currently the head of Catalyst Fund, which is a subsidiary of Comcast Ventures. This is definitely one of my my top five podcasts, just because I'm, I know I say that all the time, but honestly, just because Kai really does tell an amazing story about his journey. It's a story of trials, tribulation, and triumph. You know, they're three T's. So definitely listen to this episode. Um, this is part one of our interview. So if you're really feeling this one, definitely check out part two. I would definitely recommend that because then part two talks about more about his career as a venture capitalist as opposed to part one, which is more focused on the entrepreneurial journey and starting many companies failing and then eventually selling a company to Samsung in less than a year, which is insane within itself. So definitely check out part two, but definitely listen to part one because I think you definitely will be motivated, inspired, and I'm raring to go. All right, that's enough for me. Let's get into the episode. And prep, and you know, you, you're constantly in this cycle of continued growth and engagement, right? You're in school, you're learning, you're sort of gaining. And, you know, in order to master a particular subject, right, you've probably done it for 20 years, yeah. 15 years before you're any good at it. Yeah. And startups are no different. Hey guys, welcome to Startup Hand-Me-Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm your host, Philip Kusumu, and thank you so much for giving me the next 30 minutes of your time. I promise it'll be worth it. Today, I spoke with serial entrepreneur and now venture capitalist Kai Bond. Kai is the lead investor at Catalyst Fund, which is a seed investment fund based in New York City. Catalyst Fund is an extension of Comcast Ventures, and it serves as a unique investment vehicle to elevate minority entrepreneurship by matching capital and resources with underrepresented minority entrepreneurs, like myself. Prior to joining Catalyst Fund, Kai has had a truly remarkable career as an entrepreneur. He's had some painful failures and talks about how at his lowest point, he didn't even have enough money for the subway. We talk about how he built a company within 90 days, which he went on to then sell to Samsung within a year. In this episode, Kai really does take us on an emotional roller coaster, which is why I had to break this episode up into two parts. But anyway, guys, that's enough for me. Let's get into the action. So Kai, thank you for coming on the show today. It's good to be here. So Kai, when you're at an event, how do you introduce yourself to people? Sure, so uh, I'm Kai Bond. Um, I've run a Catalyst Fund as part of Comcast Ventures. Uh, we're a $20 million seed uh, in a Series A fund. Uh, focused on uh, diverse founding teams, so African American and Latino founders. Nice. So then, before we get onto what you're doing at Catalyst Fund, which is obviously amazing, 
Talk to me about early career. So how did you get into the world of VC before you were a VC? Sure. So, um, you know, there was no direct line into becoming a VC for me. You know, I've always been somebody who's fascinated with creating products. Uh, I came out of Wesleyan University. First job was at Microsoft as a program manager there, building yeah. out messaging apps for mobile devices. My mother's from Botswana. Um, and in 1999, I went to Botswana and everyone was carrying around an Ericsson phone wow. and texting one another. And I was like, this is crazy. You yeah. know, we're not doing this yet in the U.S., but here true. I am in the village and everybody is communicating on their mobile phone. And it's yeah. a status symbol, right? They're listening to MP3s. Mm. They have a real camera on this. Yeah. The Sony uh, phones were just coming out there and they were all a rave. And so I really wanted to focus on uh, building mobile apps and mobile services. And I was fortunate enough to be able to pursue that you know, during the first few years at Microsoft. Um, well, my family's from New York, so I came back from Seattle and moved to New York nice. and joined several startups. Uh, I knew that I didn't want to be at a really massive organization. I wanted to you know, try my hand in, in early stage. And so, you know, I joined four or five startups over the course of the next five years. And what were you uh, doing for them? Yeah, doing? so product management, um, you know, product development. Yeah. Uh, I came from a fairly technical background, and a lot of the media companies in New York didn't have the same sort of technical product management, right? You mm -hmm. saw a lot of individuals who were in marketing yeah. taking on product roles. And yeah. I had the opportunity to really connect with and manage engineers. Uh, in a different way. And so that's really where I carved out uh, a niche for myself. And I worked at a, at a bunch of amazing startups, venture-backed companies here in the city. And eventually after, you know, seeing the, the good, bad, and ugly of startups, yeah. you know, I sort of turned to myself and said, there's not one founder who I've worked for who's that much more technical than me. Mm -hmm. There's not one person who I think is a far superior product um, designer than I am. Mm -hmm. But they all have one skill that I don't have. And that's the ability to raise money. Mm. And if I need to grow my career in any meaningful way, and I know I want to be in an early stage in the startups, I need to go out and figure out how to raise money. Right. And so I started several companies. Um, you know, one was called Switch Games. It was a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for game trading. Started another company called Cash Play Games, which took chance-based casino games like slots, dice, and roulette and tied them to a sweepstakes engine and simulated real cash gaming. Um, and then I started a, a third company called Pixie TV, yeah. uh, and Pixie was a smart TV development platform, uh, very similar to a Squarespace or Wix, uh, but focused on the smart TV market. Right. And we licensed that software out to media companies that wanted to build across various platforms, Roku, uh, Xbox, PSN, uh, Fire, yeah. Samsung, LG, yeah, right? very disparate ecosystem. And we gave them one solution where they could come and build and deploy across every single platform. And that business ended up going on and being acquired by Samsung. Right. And so during my time at Samsung, I helped global uh, scale that product globally. Um, and after a year, you know, again, basically, you know, uh, back at a big company, I said, you know what, I really want to focus on an earlier stage. I was fortunate enough to join their accelerator in New York and yeah. be the general manager of that accelerator program. Nice. And I focused on new and emerging platforms, so augmented and virtual reality, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, and enterprise IoT. And as I started my, my you know, initial sort of mission there, I thought, I'm going to go, we'll incubate some products, we'll invest in a couple, yeah. but it's just a way for me to figure out how to get my next business started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I got one more year left on the earnout. like let me see what I can do. Yeah. 
And sort of during that time of investing in coaching, mentoring, advising, you know, nine startups, I realized sort of how much tribal knowledge I'd built mm. over the, the last nine years of running my own startup. And whether that was hiring, staffing, um, managing engineers, uh, raising capital, uh, pushing towards an exit, I had a lot to give back. Mm. And I sort of thought to myself, you know, I'm actually interested in the venture side. And I never thought I would be. Yeah. And uh, the opportunity came uh, to join uh, Catalyst Fund. And I jumped at the opportunity. And so that's how I sort of made my path into venture was really by being a repeat founder uh, and almost, you know, sort of blindly stumbling into the fact that, you know, there was another role for me in the startup ecosystem. Yeah. That's a that's a good breakdown. That's an interesting life there. You said so much. Okay, let's let's chop this up. So you have three startups. That's right. Pixie was the one I guess that took off. That's right. For the other two did you raise money for them? How big did they get? And were they kind of like iterations? Did you kind of like stumble into Pixie from those two? Yeah, so, you know, Switch Games, uh, we raised money in 2007 uh, for that business. And you say we, was it? Uh, Jason Crawford, uh, my business partner, who's helped launch every single business I've ever done. Nice. Uh, Jason's phenomenal. And we, we were working together, um, and he told me about this idea he had. And it really resonated with me. So, you know, anybody who's a gamer knows this issue. But, you know, you go to a GameStop, you buy a game for $60, play it for a couple of months, go to trade it in. They're like, we'll give you $8. Yeah. <laughs> we'll give you $6. Yeah. And you're like, but you're reselling it on the used game shelf for 35 Yeah. Right? So over 50% of the corporate profit that's brought in by GameStop is actually from their used games. Mm. And so... Every gamer knows it's an unfair ecosystem, but we still rely on it. Yeah. And you might sell it on Craigslist, you might sell it on eBay, but waiting for a game, it wasn't a huge piece of the market yet. And we tried to you know, really think about, you know, how did StubHub attack the secondary market? Mm. Can Switch Games attack a secondary market from a brick and mortar retailer and win a substantial part of that $2 billion you know, sort of secondary games business? Right. So we raised angel money for that. Um, you know, we <laughs> that was that was the first process for me in trying to raise money. Um, you know, we heard no 140 times. Wow. Right? We went into VCs offices, and you know, it sometimes like you would just know. Yeah. You know, tier one West Coast funds yeah. we'd walk in we'd be like they're not even interested this guy's <laughs> eating salmon yeah. you know niswa in on his phone and he doesn't even care yeah right like th- what we're talking about he's so disinterested i could say anything i want right yeah. now he wouldn't even know yeah uh in other cases people were dialed in right mm-hmm. and and you know they gave really good feedback yeah uh, and we went and and once we started to get into that niche of understanding the fit of the VC, we got higher quality meetings, mm. but we were still getting no's. Yeah. Um, and we were doing decently, right? $20,000 a month in revenue, nice. substantial transaction volume, people spending time on the site. You were still but, getting no's? And we were still getting no's. Wow. So we were fortunate enough to have 
you know, an ecosystem here in New York. Um, I worked at uh, GLG, Gerson Lehrman Group, and, you know, I had a bunch of sort of high net worth individuals on the hedge fund side who knew the games business and put in some money, right? And some Philly guys as well. Uh, they came in. It was a really nice team, right? People were super supportive of what we were doing. How long did it take to get that? That was, oh, man. That was about a 90-day process. Okay. You know, we just, but we just were back-to-back every single day. We, yeah. In one VC's office, out another. You know, we, we were fortunate that we built something we bootstrapped. Mm-hmm. And so we had a proof of concept out there that was doing a few thousand dollars in revenue. And we knew that if we could just convince someone to give us a couple hundred thousand dollars, we could turn that into what we thought was going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars of monthly transaction volume. So, you know, that, that process, you know, and then, you know, going back the second time to say, yeah. okay, we, we raised our seed. We're here at this volume. You said to hit this. We're here. Let's, you know, let's do this A round, yeah. you know, and got punted out of those rooms too, oh, right? And so, you know, eventually we just weren't able to get the traction we needed um, for the platform um, to, to really scale. So we wound that business down uh, a couple of years later. Right. Yeah. And then... Some of the angels get their money back, or was it? No, we just wound the business down. I mean, we were at a point where, you know, I maxed out my credit cards. Wow. You know, I was on my way to an acquisition discussion because we knew that the platform was valuable. Uh, we did some really interesting things with integrations um, into like the US Postal Service when people were still using Netflix and were getting DVDs wow. delivered, right? You know, we sort of understood and figured out why you would get your game so quickly from the U.S. Postal Service because they would scan it. They would tell Netflix, hey, actually, we got the game. Send it from your warehouse. They didn't actually need to receive it. So we built out this really sophisticated payments infrastructure for delayed capture, which would allow us to transfer dollars back and forth between two parties once U.S. Postal Service validated that you had signed for the package. And, you know, so we were really a trusted marketplace. We were a community, right? And you're seeing community commerce come back in a major way. And... You know, we were we were onto something, right? We had this payments platform, but again, it's a sort of this lesson in how good are your investors. Right? We mm-hmm. said, if we're having this problem with payments. There are probably a lot of people that have this problem. We should really focus on the payments infrastructure. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 no. Go after that secondary games yeah, market. Yeah, yeah. You sold us on a secondary yeah. games market. We probably have a big short on GameStop. We yeah. want somebody else in here. <laughs> and, you know, we should have made that decision on our own. Yeah. We listened too much to our investors. Right. And and so that was one of the big lessons learned in that, um, you know, first first business of ours was, you know, if we actually focused on the payments infrastructure and ecosystem, we could have had something that looked a lot like Stripe. Mm. It looked a lot like Braintree. Yeah. Around, you know, servicing a payments infrastructure rather than focusing on this used game trading. And, you know, we we tried at the very end. But, you know, I was on my way to this last acquisition discussion to try and sell the platform. And I didn't have enough money for um, for uh, for a, a fare, right, to get on the subway. No. So I was on the Second Avenue at the time. I lived in the East Village. Yeah. And I went down to the Second Avenue stop on um, actually the one on First Avenue. Um, I walked over to First. Went down the steps. Everybody who knows New York on the F train, that's a huge, there's like yeah. tons of steps. <laughs> so go deep. steps. And, and, and this is before people had cell phones, yeah. right, and, and any connectivity in the subways. And I jumped the turnstile because I was like, I got to get to this meeting. Wow. There's value in the platform. Some commerce platform is going to want to buy it. So I'm on my way to Midtown. And I saw the train come in. And I saw a cop come in. I saw the train come in. I saw the cop come in on different sides. And I saw the doors open. And he was shaking his head like, don't get on. Don't get on. <laughs> 
And so, you know, he stopped me and was like, why'd you, I saw you hop the turnstile. I was like, look, this is the situation officer. I'm trying to get to this meeting and my startup, you know, and I'm at this point in time, you know, just uh, down and out, you know, down and out, man. I, I put everything on the line, right? Wow. My, my personal savings, you know, at the time, my reputation, you yeah. know, you know, I wanted, I knew these individuals who funded my business, right? Mm. I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want to let myself down. Mm. And, um, you know, he was like, come with me, you know, I had to go back upstairs, uh, call in the, I, the, the, the number, got a ticket, you know, um, and I was devastated, right? It's like everything I had done for in the last two years, um, you know, put my heart and soul into it yeah. and to have it come crashing down and that being the moment that yeah. was like the last meeting and not even making it, you uh, know, so, so it was devastating. Um, and it was a, it was a really hard time for me. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do next. I had no clue. Um, I knew that like big company life wasn't for me, Yeah. but what was right. Um, can I sustain this? Mm. You know, is this something that I want to do in, uh, in perpetuity in the future? And just in this place of limbo. Yeah. And, and inevitably, you know, it took six months to sort of, you know, get my mind right, you know, get my health back. We were working around the clock. We were traveling around the country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I said, I'm going to do it again. Yeah. You know, it took a while. But uh, I jumped back in. And that's so funny. Like, all after raising money, having, you know, users, having this community, you find yourself, you know, not being able to pay for the train. Like, how did that, how did you feel? How did that make you feel? Were you married at the time? I was not. Okay. I was living with my my girlfriend at the time, uh, who's now my wife. And... You know, she was a corporate lawyer. You know, she was making good money. I was fortunate that, like, you know, I wasn't going to be out of home. Yeah, like, right. you know, but yeah. I'm too proud of a person to go and ask my parents for money. Yeah. You know, I'm, you know, not going to live off of her, right, in, in that way in terms of having someone carry your bills. And, and you know, even though she was supportive, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you question everything. Mm. You question everything. Mm. You know, what am I doing with my life? You know, why, why does one do this? <laughs> you know, uh, that every day, <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and, you know, there was, I interviewed, like I went around and was like, I got to get a job again, yeah. you know? And I, I remember specifically going in through a series of interviews at an unnamed big media company to help build out their mobile strategy. And after like the fourth interview in a soulless office in a giant building in yeah. Midtown, I just, I was like, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I wasted your guys' time. I gotta go. And they're like, what are you talking about? I was like, I just, I, I'm bowing out, you know? And so I decided to consult, you know, and, and figure out how I can just make a little bit of cash um, and work on products so that I could stash away enough money to do this stupid thing again. <laughs> Addiction, isn't yeah. it? Like once you start, and you, especially like getting as far as you've got, and you see traction, and you see people using this thing that you thought of. Yeah, it's like, of course, I'm going to do this again until I get it right. Yeah, and then you did get it right with Pixie. Yeah, and it took time. I mean, yeah. I think what people fail to realize is our whole lives, right? Um, 
there is no failing option, right? You do well in elementary school to get into a good middle school. You try to get into prep school. You try to get into a good college. You try to get good SAT scores. Yeah. And, you know, you have teachers and support and prep. And, you know, you, you're constantly in this cycle of continued growth and engagement, right? You're mm-hmm. in school. You're learning. You're sort of gaining. And, you know, in order to master a particular subject, right, you've probably done it for 20 years, yeah. 15 years before you're any good at it. Yeah. And startups are no different. Mm. Right, the the muscle memory of training. So the expectation that you'll be good at your first startup is this crazy misconception. Mm. You're just you won't be. It's it's impossible. You might have some of the core competencies. You might be a really good leader. You might be an amazing designer. You may understand product principles and product market fit. But there's going to be stuff that you just suck at, and there's no way about it. Yeah. And so sometimes you fail. Right. And, you know, there was this whole culture around like embracing some of that failure. And, you know, there's something cathartic around, you know, sort of these founders fail sort of dialogues that people have. Yeah. Like that first one was terrible. What was I thinking? You know, yeah. um, but I think what it came down to for me and every entrepreneur is different. You know, some people are dreamers who want to change the world and they have a particular topic around, you know, um, clean health or, mm. uh, I'm sorry, uh, clean tech or healthcare and something that drives them to solve a problem. And for me, it always came down to one thing, which was as terrible as it sounds, I hate working for other people. And it's one of those things that. You know, I just, the level of frustration, mm. right, when I cannot call the shots becomes very difficult for me. And I, I, you know, it took me seven or eight years in a workforce to understand that. And and that's a big part of the reason of why I stayed down the entrepreneurial path, which was I'd rather make, you know, $70,000 a year in New York doing what I love on a product I care about with the team that I've hired and calling the shots and moving the ball forward the way I want. Yeah rather than making a bunch of money in like a robot-like fashion where someone else is dictating the terms of what's going to happen. And so that was just, you know, part of my journey. And, and every entrepreneur I talk to has a different perspective on it. But I think the common thread is the, what drives you. Yeah. What drives you at the very core um, in creating experiences people love. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I definitely hear a lot of myself in that. <laughs> Working for someone else is, is very stressful. Yeah. So so why do you think you got Pixie TV right? So that product, you know, I think there are three things that we did very, very well um, on that side. One is we launched our first product in 60 days. Interesting. We launched our first product in 60 days. And, you know, we raised money for that business uh, right before the 4th of July. It was June, I think it was the last week of June, we got the funding in. Angels again? Um, this one was actually from um, Samsung Next. So oh, okay. it was actually strategic right. um, sort of investment from a corporate. And, you know, Samsung, you know, huge, the largest smart TV manufacturer in the world. Um, and Samsung Next is an organization that they uh, created uh, that's really a multi-headed <laughs> approach to venture, partnerships, uh, M&A, 
um, and uh, they diversified sort of their approach to uh, improving software in the in the Samsung ecosystem. Mm. And so we raised money from them, uh, and we so we, we launched that product in sixty days, and and it was a fantasy football product. And you know we were very fortunate to partner with CBS on that. And a good friend, Mark Treiber, sort of gave us access to the APIs, although they were only supposed to be for mobile. We modified them and made them fit for the TV and created this, what I think was an amazing product, what I thought was an amazing product. And then we launched it and it was shit. Right? It was, the navigation was broken, the, you know, the UI, I mean, the things that we did. But everything we needed to learn, we learned in like 90 days. Wow. Everything. How? Because the beauty of the football product was people would use it on Sunday. Yeah. And we would watch all day. We worked all day on Sunday. Wow. We would get in at 12. We'd turn on the TVs. We'd get up our, you know, our computers, our laptops, get positioned. We'd start firing up the feeds. We'd see what people were launching. And we'd monitor traffic all day. And we'd be like, that's broken. People aren't navigating to this. Why aren't they hitting that screen? They don't know how to navigate. Oh, it's only on this TV with this remote. Mm. And we would wireframe and design everything. And then the engineers would come in on Monday. And we would already have everything wireframed for the week. Nice. We'd push. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Right? Thursday, we'd push a build. We'd wait for the Thursday night game. We'd test it. It all worked. Yeah. We'd do a final deploy on Friday. And then take Saturday off. And then back at it again on Sunday. Wow. And we were able to iterate at the fastest pace because we didn't have to deal with live site issues for the other, you know, five days of the week where there was no football on. Mm. It was an amazing thing. We were lucky, right? We didn't choose that intentionally. It just happened to be that's the way football schedule works. And so it was this beautiful cycle for us where we could iterate and change and iterate and change and iterate and change. And we saw the consumer behavior. We also worked really closely with the team that was launching those services on the fantasy side. And we saw how they were using it and what they wanted. And so it was a B2B to C product. And we were growing sort of exponentially week over week as we made these improvements, right? So the speed at which we launched and the speed at which we were able to improve our platform because of how closely we focused on doing the right thing for the users um, was tremendous. So that was one. Two is we had no ego. Like when we knew it was wrong, we threw the entire fucking thing away, wow. right? We brought in George Pops. He came over from Palantir. We brought in a couple of other like phenomenal engineers, right? Yeah. So again, the quality of the team. Drew Young was one of the best designers I've ever worked with in my life. He figured out that the TV resolution was actually like 1960. Um, and instead of like a regular, um, you know, uh, uh, broadcast quality, our our platform looked like it was live TV. Wow. And so, again, quality of the engineers, quality of the experience, right? So we sort of had this perfect cycle for us to move quickly, make something that was beautiful and really valuable for our consumers. And at the end of that football season, we had re-architected the entire thing to fit with every single major sport in the US, plug in all of the platform feeds from any sport and get the navigation right, get the engagement right, and we launched our World Cup. You know, we, we launched basketball and we launched a bunch of other products, but we were very fortunate that the World Cup hit that mm. year, right? So that was 2014. 2014. Okay. Right? That was the Brazil World yeah. Cup. And that was when t- 
Instagram was becoming huge and there were pictures of people on the streets in Rio yeah. and, and on the beaches and in the stadiums and social was a huge part and all of these, you know, um, top tier athletes are tweeting about their experiences, yeah. um, you know, at the World Cup. And so we had this perfect storm that came together, right? And so the last component was just luck. Like, we happened to hit a global event with our launch yeah. again. And we hit the first sport we hit. We nailed the right one yeah. accidentally. Mm. It just happened to be it was the next one that was coming up. Yeah. Right. And then we ended with a sport that was global and was a one-time special event. Yeah. And everyone is fixated on it. And our smart TV experience for the World Cup, when you brought in the elements of social and the beauty of the images of the, of the beautiful game and we were just fortunate. And, you know, when we went to, uh, you know, uh, South Korea um, to have the discussions about the acquisition of the business and of the smart TV team, um, you know, everyone understood the game. Yeah. When I first showed off fantasy football, the executives who I showed it to at Samsung were like, what the hell is this? Mm. You created a new game? Yeah. Right? They don't play fantasy football. Yeah. But everybody understands, well, almost everybody in the world, maybe <laughs> save some Americans, uh, understands, you know, soccer. Yeah. And so that was also, again, just kind of lucky yeah. for us. So That's awesome. And yeah. how big was the team at the time? We were six. Six of you guys. That's it. Four That's engineers, it. a designer, and myself. One round of funding. Yeah. And then you got that. That's it. And the time frame was? Uh, nine months to the verbal offer, uh, 14 months through the actual final transaction happening. How did that feel? Like, after you know the first two failures to this? You know, it was... Um it was interesting, right? You know, there was a there was a moment in time when I got the verbal offer. You know, I had been working a hundred hours a week for you know six weeks leading up to this trip to Korea, mm. and we wanted to launch another sport. We wanted to make sure everything was polished. We were really ready. And at that moment, you know, that night, you know, after it happened, the level of excitement and adrenaline was off the charts. And obviously, you know, I had deals before yeah. that failed, right? Cash Play had a signed LOI to be acquired. We only raised uh, $700,000 for that business. We had a signed LOI to acquire that business for $18 million. Wow. And it fell through one hour before the deal expired. No. And the company ended up acquiring a competitor. And they were running a competitive process. Uh, and that was crazy to go in on Monday morning and tell my team, who I was with my bankers, yeah. in the diligence meetings that Thursday night before. And they were like, this is a layup. This deal is done. Yeah. I've never been in a meeting that's so easy. We had you know, my business partner, Jason. I went out to L.A. to go see him. Yeah. He carries around the piece of paper from the agenda of our diligence meeting. Yeah. And it was literally like visa transfers right? like how do we get these visas transferred smoothly wow. you know uh, over to our new business right so you know there was this excitement but it was also very much like this shit isn't done right I've been in this position before so I just gotta go and execute mm. right um, and so it was very tepid right in terms of my, my level of excitement uh, post sort of verbal um, and then once the transaction happened you know Number one is like the, the day that you can share, you know, with the team, the people that have been there with you, you know, every day. You know, the sad part is like, and I love those guys, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I spent more time with them for a course of a year than I did with my wife. Yeah. 
every day, mm. you know, from 9.30 until 10 o'clock at night because we were testing NBA games yeah. right into the night. And yeah. so we'd be around the clock. And seeing the look on their face, you know, when you're like, this is how much you're getting paid after this acquisition, right? Uh-huh. This is what the next two years. And changing people's lives, mm. you know, was a tremendous experience. And, and the team was grateful, um, you know, to, to for my family, you know, what I've been doing for, you know, the last eight years, yeah, wow. you know, and people being supportive, um, you know, right after sort of that, that the, the, the acquisition happened, it was my parents' um, 40th wedding anniversary, and I took them out, and it was just, you know, a special time for everyone across yeah. the board. Um, and so it was great, you know, it was a super satisfying experience, and it's humbling too, you know, um, when you sort of recognize that despite all the odds and the failures and the ups and downs, you know, you made it. And, you know, I look at, you know, the, the financial returns and rewards of that as good, but not the validation that yeah. I wanted, right, yeah. and what I was looking for. And I was like, look, if I would have just continued working at GLG or some <laughs> hedge fund or finance like my friends, they probably have more money than me, yeah. right? You know, and so you get that payday and, and you sort of understand, but it's really about the fact that you did it. Mm. You know, you set forth a vision, you go and look at that early deck. You know, I always remember like the day that the business was acquired, I went back to the first pitch deck that we did. And very, I think it's fairly rare, but we looked at it and it was like exactly what we set out to do. Wow. You know, and I was like, holy shit, there were 10 things we wanted to do and we got through seven. Yeah. You know, if we had a time and we're working on the other two of, yeah, two yeah. of the remaining three right now. Yeah. And so um, it, was, it was a special time for sure for me in terms of, validating you know what i've been working on for a long time that's awesome how much did you set up on the end can we say it was undisclosed Undisclosed. yeah i mean but you know (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah i do that's the end of part one of the kai bond interview And even listening back to this episode, I felt his pain as I did the first time when he told me that story about getting that ticket for jumping over the barriers and then not being able to sell his company at the, you know, 11th hour. I mean, he really does take you there and make you feel what he felt. But anyway, be sure to look out for part two where Kai talks about life as a black entrepreneur and life as a black VC. And then he talks about the future of funding for black entrepreneurs. As always, guys, thanks for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please, please, please subscribe and leave a review on the Apple Podcasting app. They honestly do go a long way. Until next time, guys, keep grinding.